0: This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Cubians, we are here in You're class here. with Carr, episode 101. 101. Man. Man. Hmm. Uh, first of all, thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carr, for uh, everything. Love you immensely. Love you. It's so... Nice.
1: Uh, we're all here in one on one. We're getting to our new things now, moving into another cycle.
0: Yes, we are. And as as we do this, you know the the office hours that you have masterfully put together on Mondays, you know, which started um, it evolved into becoming a book study of thousands of people studying a book. Last month it was the miseducation of the Negro Carter G. Woodson leading into Black History Month, Negro History Week, Black History Month. Hmm. And this month we're doing Souls of Black Folk, WB Du Bois. Now, way, way, way back back in the day, last year when we started narrative, the vision was we were gonna have books that we would study. You and I would have conversations, we would implant them in the books, people, and they're still there. So the book that digitally is on narrative has a conversation that you and I had. before there was a Nubia. So there wasn't a Nubia. We didn't know we could do this live thing and have this kind of energy and connection. That's right. And there was something you said during that conversation that just put me on my behind in the way that I'm like, this is possible. The boys had a vision of curing or solving all of the problems in a black community over a hundred year period, taking 10 issues, studying them over a 10-year period and eradicating each problem. And my thought is, I mean, it's 2022. We got all thousands of people in here that are brilliant with their brick because they've come here intentionally. Hmm. Maybe we could fast track some of this stuff.
1: Hmm. Yes. Yes. That is very interesting because Du Bois, and we were talking about that uh, before we went live, and, and and good morning, evening, afternoon to everybody to echo what, what you just said, Karen. Um, when Du Bois came along, of course, we didn't have any of this technology. There certainly wasn't the avalanche of data and data collection uh, tools and technology. So we didn't have any of that. And When Du Bois came along, we didn't have this technology. We didn't have all this data collection stuff and tools. We didn't have this avalanche of information. So the difference between then and now, of course, is that we didn't have as much stuff to pull from. And the difference between then and now was that we didn't have all these distractions and things that would pull us in a million different directions. So the Atlanta University Studies, as they're kind of commonly known now, and this is a pretty much an academic conversation. It's not a conversation that is had beyond small groups of people in academia and those that they are connected to. Maybe a handful of policymakers, a few people who give out grants, foundations, and all this is going to become important in a second. I'm just going to mention it briefly, and and I want to take a unique opportunity this uh, today to thread and read this and what we uh, can aspire to through. A life that intersects with Du Bois's life, but from a very different, a different a kind of a, a different track and trajectory, even as there are parallels. And and I'm going to bring this sister up as we're thinking through what we can learn from these Atlanta University studies and through Du Bois, because for two reasons. One, it's a name that probably most people, well, three reasons. One, it's a name probably most of us have not heard. Um, The second reason um, I knew her, in fact, it was one of her cousins that informed me that she made transition a couple of days ago on the 10th of February in St. Louis. And the third reason is that we can learn from her life and walk, including the time that she spent with W.E.B. Du Bois in Ghana. What we might think about when it comes to us taking advantage of all the things we had that Du Bois didn't have while at the same time preserving and anchoring ourselves in the type of focus that not having those kind of things uh, can allow you to have that you can only see in retrospect.
0: Before we get in, let me ask you, um, because you said something that was like, what was the literacy rate when Du Bois was working through this? I mean, yes, we have way more distractions, but do we have more human capital? Or is that is that a detriment to not, so if, if the majority of people were not learned, Black people, when Du Bois and even Carter G. Woodson and others were crafting these, these you know, I think very sage, stand the test of time, philosophies and, and ideologies, are we in a worse condition? Because now people can read and now they're reading for themselves and doing their own stuff. And Nicki Minaj's cousin's left testicle now is in play when it might not have been because we would trust the science because scientists know more. Like everybody now is knowledgeable so everybody can read so they can study for themselves. Is that a detriment to where to, to creating the world that we want to live in?
1: You know, it's funny how none of, none of these questions we're asking ourselves, including that anchoring question that we, you know, center ourselves in in Nubia Narrative and beyond from Sister Sonia Sanchez, yeah, but how do it free us? Which is should always be our guide. Those questions are are complicated. It's never all one thing or another thing. Are we better off now than we were uh at the last quarter of the 19th century? Yes, of course, because we were in what, as we read in Carter G. Woodson and Miss Education of the Negro, what he called a sequel to slavery. We were in apartheid, we were in Jim Crow. And that isn't a condemnation of the black communities that came out of enslavement. It's a condemnation of white supremacy. And so we can say, yes, we're better off now. However, the type of apartheid that we're on the verge of re, uh, re-entering, which is why we have to study the past. We don't study the past for kicks. We study the past to recognize cycles and to gain momentum of memory to, to, to intervene. Um, clearly, with the white Nationalist Party in the United States linked to other white supremacist networks and uh, which are propped up by finance capital in the you know, modern capitalist system, we are on the verge of entering another period which almost in some ways will be an updating of the late 19th century.
0: Minus the collective. So because when we were in apartheid, we had very few choices now we got Negroes and Gucci and uh yeah, you know, videos yeah. about you man. know like like the the disconnect of self and and collective and you know p- putting money into our own back you know it's just like it's like we knew you know the teachers and the garbage collectors and the, and and the lawyers and the doctors all lived together because there was no you know choice right but also that gave everybody a sense of community that we don't quite have now and then the notion that i i'm gonna spend my money over there with people who don't put back into the community and then i'm gonna glorify and then we got a whole ass super bowl uh, uh is glorify- there a yeah.
1: is that this
0: weekend i don't know i'm not watching but i know that there's like artists and stuff oh, that, uh,
1: mary j blige is not getting paid and she's happy about that
0: I'm not I so, so see what I'm saying? No, Dr. Carr, would we have done that in the companies and stuff? maybe I don't know, maybe, maybe, maybe. So we,
1: a, we wouldn't have been allowed in. I think that, you know, again, when we start our history with slavery or segregation, everything since then looks like progress. And uh God bless Mary J. Blige and, and all of the uh all of the entertainment uh that will be uh you know, be at the at the so called Super Bowl. Um if you were waiting on those of us who are not going to watch for your bread, you'd be in the starving bread line. But you know we understand this. This is what we live in. You raised something very important. um, um just finished reading a small book by Adolf Reed that just came out um, called "The South: Jim Crow and Its Afterlives." What Professor Reed did—first-rate um, academic. Uh, his father was an academic. You know, I've talked about Adolf Reed Sr. before. Um, New Orleans. He's from New Orleans, but he's traveled all over New York, lived in New York, Arkansas, where his father's on faculty. Um, His father worked at HBCUs and HWCUs. Uh, Adolph Reed has worked at HWCUs, the last of which was University of Pennsylvania. He's professor emeritus there. But one one of the reasons he wrote this short book, it's only about 100, almost, not even 140 pages. One of the reasons he wrote this book was he's tracing, he's saying the last generation to have experienced Jim Crow legal Jim Crow, legal apartheid in, this, in the United States, is now passing off the scene. He's one of those people. And he's saying that we need to record more memories from those folk because, you know, we were born, you know, I was born and we were the shock troops of integration in some ways. And I was born in 60, 65. So, you know, my parents were in that generation. They're older. Than Adolf Reed, but Adolf Reed is saying, Yeah, it's time for us, those of us who were born in the 1940s and, and 50s, who are just old enough to remember 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know, those in the 50s kind of have childhood memories like his, but he's just old enough now. And in the 1940s, you know, people born like that, I'm thinking about Malefia Sante, Milana Karenga leonard jeffries you know some of the people with rosalind jeffries there's a lot of people we can think of now who are in their 80s or approaching their 80s to set this down because it can look like we haven't made progress to generations who entered something where the battle was fought but the battle is never won because the thing about white nationalism and white global white supremacy is that it always retains the momentum of memory not because it's 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 more clever or smart, but because since it was ensconced, every system that we have reinforces the momentum of that skewed, racist, white nationalist memory right. from our earliest days in school, through all of the mass media, through the entertainment. And so the momentum of memory is baked into the social structure. And we, get, we inherit that memory too. And to the point you raised, finally, the hedge of apartheid, for all of its terrible elements, and Reed brings this up in in his book, The South, and Woodson brought it up in uh, The Miseducation of the Negro. For all of its terrible elements, it, it, it forestalled, it suppressed, it retarded the development of class fractures in the black community, so that the people who might in a unrestricted society, move away from the poor people or the lower class people were trapped by apartheid in those communities. And so those who wanted nothing to do with the poor still had proximity to them, many times had to earn their living from them. And those whose instincts were to move collectively had those instincts fed and and, and kind of developed even further by the fact that they couldn't move. So you know had there not been apartheid, Du Bois more than likely would never have worked at Wilberforce or the Atlanta University. He he would never he would have been at Emory, or he would have been at Ohio State or Yale or Harvard. He wouldn't have, and so, and I'm going to bring this up in the context of the sister who just made transition, Alice Wyndham, and I encourage people to look her up. W i n d o m, Alice Wyndham, who graduated from uh, Sumner High School, the famous summer high school of St. Louis because uh, there was Sumner High School in Kansas City. I've talked about Wilma Bonner's book, who was on faculty at Howard for many years, who writes about the Sumner story in Kansas City, Kansas. So Sumner was a fairly popular name, as was Dunbar. We're going to see Dunbar several times today again. But as, as as Alice Windham, Professor Windham used to always say, she said when I, she went from Sumner High School in St. Louis, academic prep, she said, where many of the teachers had master's degrees and PhDs because they couldn't work in their professions. And because teaching isn't an honored profession in the American social structure today, they would likely not be there. They'd be in their chosen professions because you don't get paid enough. She went from there to Central State in Ohio, an HBCU. She went from there to the University of Chicago where she got her master's in social work. And at that time, the HBCU Central State, uh, the education she received there was top rate. It was one of the few undergraduate schools in the country of any background that offered a bachelor's in social work. And so when she went to the university of Chicago and ran straight up into that situation, she said, I had professors who had written, many of whom had written the textbooks that we were using in class. They were considered the leading authorities in social work. And if you know the field of social work, uh, you know that the university of Chicago is considered to be one of the gold standard institutions. And so she said, But I laughed in class often because I'm like, you all wrote these books. You're at the top of this field. And when it comes to teaching, you couldn't even get hired at the high school I went to where it was an all-Black faculty who were superior teachers, who have the academic credentials you have, except they know how to teach. Y'all don't know how to teach. Y'all be somewhere writing and talking to each other. That's great. And I learn when I teach myself. And she talks about all this. Um, But she said, you couldn't she just laughs that y'all couldn't crack the faculty at my high school in St. Louis. And that is the other side. Now there are those who would say that we romanticize those black, those segregated schools. And I hear that criticism. I embrace it. I accept it as a complicated uh, point of entry to think about the nature of what segregation did at the same time. I'm the product of an HBCU. I work at an HBCU and I'm very clear. To those who would say, "Well, those schools weren't as great," I'm very clearly, those people have been have been trained to worship their master, and as they worship their master, and I'm being intensely provocative with that language. Let me define what I mean by worship their master. They don't have an experiential grounding in what that type of excellence looks like. I do. I have no respect for white institutions. Um, If by respect for white institutions, that means I accept what they say about themselves and what others say about them without having my own direct experience, because I have something to compare it to and that something came from me. And it's not just family. It's not just community. It's black institutions. And so I'm very clear. I I haven't had a professor at any institution that was any better and most of them not as good as the top faculty I had at Tennessee State. I just simply haven't. And so for a lot of times people say, well, those segregated schools, they're they're, they're speaking with a kind of curated ignorance that this society that preserves the momentum of memory and whiteness um, has a deep investment in in creating for them. And then not only creating, but perpetuating, because these are the kind of people who are curated into these white institutions to continue that type of corrosive, uh, attack on Blackness. They don't see it as an attack. They, th- they think they're being helpful. Again, so this or I'm not criticizing, just criticizing them as individuals. But I'm saying all that as a lead up to Du Bois to say that we can learn from the Atlanta University Studies and the what we call the Atlanta University Studies were created, began before Du Bois got to Atlanta University. They start around 1895. Um, the label given to the sociology department at the atlanta university and of course that is one of the schools that made up the atlanta university center at the time so at the time you have morris brown college you have spelman college you have morehouse college you have the interdenominational theological seminary itc which is consists of you know turner theological seminary the the ame church amy's answers you got all them in the formation and you've got uh the atlanta university the atlanta university is like the was like the capstone to graduate iteration in the au and of course you see the atlanta university merge with clark uh college in 1989 to become clark atlanta university so if you're looking for the atlanta university now you won't find it as a freestanding entity it's now clark atlanta and its campus used to be in the buildings du bois's office in fact was in fountain hall which is where the campus of Morris Brown College, Morris Brown, took over those buildings from the Atlanta University. Now, all that is backdrop. Du Bois gets to uh, gets to Atlanta University about two years after they've started these studies. These studies of black life. Now, at the time, of course, uh, you have many of the HBCUs, not all of them, because by the time you get to the 1890s, you, you have the Morrill Land Grant Act of 1890 which is going to establish these land-grant universities. But of course, in the South with apartheid, they're going to create separate black schools like the one I went to, Tennessee A&I at the time, State College for Negroes, uh, 1912. So, you know, they aren't on the scene yet, but you already have Spelman and Morehouse, as I said, you have Howard, you have Tuskegee, you have, uh, of course, Cheney and Lincoln, you have those schools. So you have the private schools, you have Wilberforce, you have, and there are gonna be more public schools kind of come on the scene in the first 10 to 20 years of the 20th century. So Du Bois, there's not a critical mass of black scholars to study black life from these black institutions. In fact, Du Bois, says we read, and so of the black folk, and then we read in Woodson's, uh, the miseducation of the Negro. And Woodson worked at two of those HBCUs. He worked at a private and a public. He worked at Howard University for a little over a year. And then he worked at West Virginia State College. West Virginia State College, which uh, was established, uh, it's not the oldest one. I think Shorter College is older. Went in Harper's Ferry. We talked about that. We talked about John Brown. Of course, they went out of business. But so Woodson says the same thing in the Miseducation of the Negro. Many of these schools you're calling colleges, these HBCUs that you're calling colleges, really are not really colleges. They're kind of like training spaces. They're, they're not even really good high schools, but we give them the name almost aspirationally. And both of both Woodson and Du Bois would say, you know, we might be better off shuttering some of these schools and consolidating those resources and just pouring them into the handful that we would consider colleges. So this is what they might call that the Hampton, Howard, Fisk, Atlanta University um. Morehouse-Spellman idea, let them be the leaders, and then we'll kind of shutter some of the rest of them. Of course, that didn't happen. We're still over at, at over 100 HBCUs. Now, with all this backdrop, Du Bois arrives at Atlanta University in 1897. This is two years after these sociological studies of Black life have been started at Atlanta University, but the arrival of Du Bois at Atlanta University would almost be like It's not a perfect metaphor, but it would be like when the Bulls drafted Jordan. Except even more. Like the Bulls drafted Jordan and then won the national championship, won the NBA championship the next year. But Jordan, even Jordan needed help. Well, Du Bois was the most trained academic of African descent in the country and one of the most trained academics of any background in the world. And of course. Apartheid is going to stop him from going any of these other places. University of Pennsylvania hires him to do a study of black people in, in, in Philadelphia, and he literally invents the field of urban sociology in the Philadelphia Negro as a one-man gang. He and his wife, Nina, and the baby Burkhardt living in South Philly, right off South Street, uh, in the shadow of Mother Bethel AME Church. And he's knocking on doors by the thousands, drawing his own maps, you know, doing it. And Penn won't even let him live on campus. That's why he's in South Philly down there with the black people he's studying. And they won't let him lecture on campus. So when he finishes the Philadelphia Negro, he's like, well, y'all gonna keep me around. I get a job. He's like, oh, hold on, bro. You're a Negro. Look in the mirror. Okay. <laughs> now, because he had come from, to Penn from Wilberforce. Yeah, been at HB, so he goes back to an HBCU, 1897. Du Bois takes up the job at Atlanta University, and he immediately looks over the the program of study because what they the reason they study the reason they started this is they're going to look at specific topics of black life because remember 1895 we're talking about 30 years after the Civil War. So 4 million people of African descent have been enslaved. And then 1865, they are turned into freed people. Nobody asked them what they wanted. And then within the decade, 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment are passed, 65, and then by 1870, you've got the the 15th Amendment is passed. So sixty-eight to 14th Amendment, within a five-year period, they have moved from, you're no longer enslaved. Well, what are we? Okay, y'all are citizens. Well, damn, nobody asked me here. Okay, fine, we're citizens. And we're going to extend the right to vote to Black men. Okay, what about Black women? Well, you know, we'll worry on that another time, but at least some of y'all can vote. Well, okay. All this is a dizzy and boom, boom. And then, That's 1870. Fast forward to 1895, when they start these studies, who are you studying? You're studying people, the vast majority of whom have come out of enslavement. They're having babies, but even if you had a baby in 1870, when the 15th Amendment passed, the child is now 25 years old, and some of them showing up to go to college, some of these schools, and, but but it's a trickle. It ain't a flood yet, even as the, in terms of public education, as Du Bois writes in Black Reconstruction in America in 1935. It's as if an entire race tried to go to school. So the question you ask about what, who could read or write in English, which is the definition we use of literacy, because they're absolutely culturally literate in their cultures, but they may not have acquired their capacity to read or write in English. Well, what Du Bois tracks, what Carter Woodson tracks, what those first couple of generations of black folk who have gone to institutions to receive a formal education and achieve beyond a bachelor's degree to even go into terminal degrees like a PhD, not to mention law degrees, medical degrees. As they begin to study black people, what they begin to understand and peel back, including folks like the great South Carolinian who took up residency in Florida, the great Mary McLeod Bethune, who testifies before Congress in the early 1940s, I think 1942 or 43. She says, these Negroes who could not read or write figured out a way, largely through their own effort, although they had help and assistance, but largely through their own effort, prompted by those who acquired the capacity to read or write, like Black soldiers who had gone and joined the Union Army uh, and others, that handful of Blacks who could find a way to read or write, they basically, they didn't wipe out so-called illiteracy, but they came very close within two generations. So by 1895, uh, you have a majority of Black people in the United States of America, including the South, who can read or write. And it's not because the, the social structure just realized it's better to have these people reading and writing than that. No, in the South, they want you as smart as you need to be to work, which means you don't really need to be able to count on all this figuring stuff because you'll figure out how I'm cheating you because now they're debt penis, they're, they're sharecroppers. But these Black people, in spite of those objectives, have figured out a way to tip the scale. So by 1895, when Atlanta University starts these sociological studies, what are the problems facing Black people? How do we address those problems? They start that work. You, you have Black people in this country, me, millions can read or write at this point. Then Du Bois comes in 1897, and he says, this is when he introduces this concept. He says, "Um, what if we take a subject every year, make that the subject that we send surveys out all over the country to Black institutions, to black organizations, to to, to black communities. We retrieve that data. We then assess that data. We generate a report that we then share with these very same black institutions and some white ones, because we don't need funding for this kind of thing. Every year we'll pick a topic. And then until we get to 10, and then in year 11, we'll go back to the topic we had in year one, assess the progress we've made. And in so doing, we will build the momentum of understanding, we compare the data from 1898 and then we'll come back in 1908 or 1909 or 1908 or nine and look at what they did in 18, we did in 1898, we'll see what the progress we've made as we are introducing the other topics year by year and also monitoring and updating the data we had before. His thing was: if we do this 10 times, every 10 years we've studied each of these 10 topics and made adjustments and seen what progress we made and how we need to make more progress. By a century, we will have wiped this out. Mm. Now, you know, you're looking at him like, bruh, we could wipe it out a lot sooner. Du Bois like, nah. These forces are intractable. And mind you now, this is in the late 19th century. So what has not happened yet? The technology of death has not been developed. You read Nixon Baker's book, Human Smoke. They ain't bombing people from the air with airplanes yet, or putting mustard gas in their ass. That's still 20, 25 years. Old. That's World War One. They haven't invented the A-bomb yet, which means now the human being, human being, human race has the capacity to destroy itself. Um, certainly oil and gas and coal are there, but you haven't had global warming emerge because industrialization is still a big thing. And much of the world are colonies of that tiny little part of Western Eurasia called Europe. So you haven't had the anti-colonial movement. In fact, they're still trying to lock down control of the world, these white masters of the world, as Du Bois called them. So the social structure that Du Bois is trying to imagine a hundred years from when he starts this in this cycle, hasn't even yet emerged to be understood. And we can not anticipate how that would impact the studies. So let's just mention a couple of the studies. In fact, let's just start with the first one. Du Bois gets down here in 1897. And by 1898, he's completed the first of this cycle. And the title of that first one was Some efforts of Negroes, some efforts of Negroes for their own social betterment. So that's a broad topic. So we did that, let's say, today in in Nubia Narrative. Some efforts of Negroes, some efforts of people of African descent for their own social betterment. The difference between now and then is, there are more books, there are more studies, there are more monographs, there are more ongoing research than any of us can count now that we could draw from. We don't have to do original research. There are more think tanks. There are more subsidized places. There are more scholars writing books for each other. And during Du Bois's time, he the one sending they, his people the only one sending surveys out, and he's got undergraduates he's training as well, cause he don't have no whole quarter of scholars. And the and the people he's sending this to are the handful of black organizations which are better informed because they are more respected then, and there are fewer of them. I mean, you got the Masons, the Order of Eastern Star. You don't even have the fraternities and sororities yet. When he's doing this. So you got the churches that people are going to church. You send a survey out like that to the churches in 1897. And you send a survey like that, like that out to the churches in 2022, I'm going to go with 1897. Because it's probably going to be a higher percentage of black people who you can be able to touch if you have the resources and capacity to do that. And of course, he doesn't have the resources and capacity to do that at this Negro College, which means if you could take some of the resources from 2022 and send them back to 1897, I would much rather trust the 1897 process over the 2022 process, because now... When you send it to the churches, they'd be like, well, we'll do the best we can. And we got a little piece of grant, too, over here. And we have a social action program over here. And we got these community service organizations. Oh, yes, yeah, a lot more than y'all had in ATL. Sure is. But at the same time, these people not coming to church like this no more. Oh, yeah, that's right. Jim Crow is over. Apartheid is over. The, the concept in terms of ways of knowing of African people is much more fractured. People could say diverse, but I choose to use the word fractured. Um... And some of that has to do with the erasure of formal apartheid. And some of it has to do with the constant bombardment from the social structure to pull us away from ourselves, or at least ourselves as we were formally constituted. So it's a great question. Is it better now than then, even in terms of research aspiration? But if we take that first one, this is why I'll end for a second. If we take that uh, that first study, the efforts of Negroes for their own social betterment, They generated a report in 1898. Now, we said 10 years, right? Du Bois leaves the Atlanta University to go full-time working for the NAACP after they found the NAACP in 1909. He becomes the editor of Crisis Magazine in 1910. That means the efforts of Negroes for betterment, efforts to better themselves, is going to be one of the few reports that Du Bois is able to generate at the Atlanta University that he gets to do the follow-up study. Now, there are going to be others who take over after him and Atlanta University becomes the center in many ways for social science done by Black people for Black people. And that kind of reputation persists for decades up to and including, to evoke Adolf Reed again, his book, The South, some of that last generation that suffered apartheid. I think about uh, the brilliant, deeply influential who, you know, me talking about him like this i can hear him say uh, i appreciate that brother but i was part of a community yes you were but uh, i'm talking about mac jones who was at the atlanta university there are many students of mac jones now who did social science in fact uh he he published a um a collection of his writing and i see it right over there but i'm not gonna get up and go in the other room and get it um look up mac jones m-a-c-k uh more people now who don't know the Titan, Matt Jones, and those people who were at Atlanta University. And remember, Atlanta University social science includes social work, Whitney Young, and all the Atlanta University. So, so the seeds of that are planted with Du Bois. But a lot a lot of people now, you might not know the name, Mac Jones, but you probably know his children, the novelist, Tayari Jones, and the sports commentator, Bomani Jones. But their father, <laughs> Mac Jones, Comes out of Atlanta. They call it the Atlanta University School, and the echo is the echo of Du Bois. You hear Du Bois. Is In fact, uh Alden Morris, always Alden Morris's book. uh The sociologist denied. Anyway, I had to look. I haven't seen all Morris since before COVID. We were all together at at, at at Clark Atlanta University for the the anniversary of the Souls of Black Folk. Maybe the the 150th anniversary of the Souls of Black Folk. Oh, because Mary baraka was still. Uh, alive, we were all down there together. And, I, and last time I saw, in fact, Alden Morris was standing there with him, Gerald Horn, Mary Baraka, and Horn was talking about going back to the. <laughs> I love it when Gerald starts getting going, and you just see people realize it's almost like they they, they got on a jet plane. They didn't realize it was a plane. They thought they was in a car, and then the plane took off. It was a, really a plane. So he didn't go to the Treaty of Westphalia. He's in the 17th century, and I'm looking at these cats like I'm like, yeah. He, Took off what well, you did. <laughs> I love it. I mean, but let me let me. I, I raised I raised that image in my mind for this reason. These black institutions, in that moment, you get a glimpse of what those black institutions were like when people couldn't go anywhere else. So Du Bois is generating scholarship that he's sending out to networks of scholars, many white scholars, but the black scholars he's sending things out to, the black institution builders he's sending things out to. Are people in control of black institutions who themselves are outsized intellects? It's very different than now. Now, well, go ahead. You about to say? No, no,
0: no. I mean, I asked the question um, because the very thing that you're talking about right now. I go Google search Mac Jones. I can't find anything. You say Bomani. A lot of stuff on Bomani Jones, but Mac Jones is the giant, right? And well, no disrespect to Bomani, he's great. No, no, when
1: you hear, when you, when, you
0: when, when Bomani opens his mouth, that analysis. That's you what I'm saying. hear Mac Jones. We, okay. Why don't we know his father first? And the work that we're doing here, the work that you have centered us on, is to remember yes. by putting these pieces into place so that we can have a system. So no longer is like, oh, we, we praise these people. Somebody asked in the chat, you know, would Mary J. Blige think the way she does if she watched one in class with car and i was like that's an interesting question uh, yes yeah. in question <laughs> i mean yeah because it takes how many years to unlearn or to you know like she's indoctrinated into this notion that i'm gonna do this thing for free i'm gonna get paid to do all these other things commercial she's gonna have wild success from doing this because the social structure definitely heaps praise upon people that uh furthers the the notion that they have of us anyway, right? They, they right. like that, which is why that halftime show looks the way it does. You know, it, it is exactly right. how they see us.
1: That's right. You know, That's birth of right. a
0: nation. But you know, but you as know, you're
1: talking never to the slaves fourth of July, they that carried us off captive required of us a song. Shit, singing for white people has been going on since the boats pulled up. This ain't this ain't no this ain't no advancement, Jay. It's time to stop the kneeling shit. You better need you better pray anyway go ahead i'm sorry,
0: I'm sorry. Uh, i mean and oh, more of that though because you know we're in a space right now and i'm like i ask this question every day can we blame the people who are so uh miseducated that they don't know why it's a problem to have a you know no. a video about sit- sitting for two hours and being disrespected and gucci like you don't know why it's a problem to go into Hermes to buy a bag and be disrespected mm. you don't know why it's a problem to to perform in I don't think they know that there's a problem. They think that they're doing something for their career, for their advancement for black people even. I think they think they think they're doing something for us.
1: Well that's interesting. You know, I mentioned uh, well, you know it's very interesting because remember while Du Bois is at Atlanta University doing his work. There is and we talked about this during office hours on Monday again if you all are watching this on the YouTube side later. Um again, it's just a, a reminder that the work we're doing in Nubia isn't new work. Well, uh, let me say it, it isn't new work in the sense of the process, reading, thinking together, everybody bringing themselves, connecting what we're thinking through into collective thinking work, with, we can, which we can then take from that learning space, that exchange, that imbongi, that collective, and then use to apply to the institution building work that we're doing outside of that space everybody didn't have to do everything that's why i'm saying we're working through this question of how we can you learn from new boys so in that respect it is not new but here's the thing that makes it i think a little new that's why i paused souls of black folk miseducation of negro selected not only because of where we are in the calendar year we're now into uh negro history week month black history month and but selected because we'd already, as you mentioned, loaded them into narrative. So with the, you, know, you subscribe to narrative, you have these, including a kind of front conversation we had. And then you have the electronic version, so you don't have to go out and get another book. It's there. But the thing that makes it unique, I think, is I'm not aware of, certainly not pre-COVID, when the largest book clubs I'm aware of might be several hundred dealing with black books now. And I see all the proliferation of these new kind of, you know, yeah, no name is doing her reading circles, which I think is very important and remarkable, transformative. Uh, there's the well-read black girl platform and when the sister's doing a lot of important work. I don't, I'm, I'm not aware. Of in all the years that I've been aware of, participated in, been part of study circles, you know, book discussion groups, thirteen hundred some people reading the same book, having a conversation, and not a lecture, a conversation, which is why now it comes to the point. Monday, when we were in the second, uh, f- the the second cluster of four chapters in Souls of Black Folk that we were talking about. Du Bois' time teaching in Tennessee, his analysis of the city of Atlanta, and then the larger black belt dealing with Georgia as his case study, uh, his whole discussion of education and institution building from 1903, uh, when Brother Garrett came in from Texas, Garrett Faria, and talked about how he opens uh, one of the chapters with the lynching of Sam Hose in Georgia um, of the Black Belt, the Black Belt chapter, the last one we, we read when he's dealing with Georgia. And um, American terrorism, which Garrick wrote uh, during COVID. He's a lawyer, a trained lawyer. He also has a master's in african studies. He, he, he talked about that lynching in the context of the lynching of Sam Hope. And one of the things that he mentioned when Sam hope was lynched, this black man in Georgia, which, which is, has a labor dispute with this white boy that's trying to cheat him, basically, and it ends up, you know, with his body parts chopped up in butcher's window in Atlanta, and the whites go crazy, you know, foreshadowing January 6 2021, uh, foreshadowing the election of 2022 and 2024, foreshadowing the race wars that are likely to break out over the next decade as this white minority rule is not stood for by those who finally understand that there's no way to placate white nationalism. You just got to strangle it in the crib. In other words, past is prelude. I'm I'm not even afraid. I mean, at this point, we just need to be smart, not scared. But as Garrett was talking through that lynching, that Du Bois opens that chapter in the souls of black folk, He mentioned the fact that Du Bois, when he became aware of what had happened, he was on his way to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution with correspondence to deliver to Joel Chandler Harris, uh, the white appropriator of some of those culturally literate African morality tales, um, animal tales that were used to communicate values that Joel Chandler Harris would become, who was then working as an editor at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, uh, would become famous for uh, absorbing and converting to what they call the Uncle Remus stories So you know those stories are Africa out of Africana ways of knowing the social structure you know um consider him an early Eminem or Elvis or well you 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 entered the name of your favorite cultural appropriator that some of our uh, less educated, you know, and by less educated, I mean, deeply acculturated out of their own interest can seem to elevate as if they made themselves into themselves. But at any rate, Du Bois was going down there. And this is the point I'm trying to make. And this is where it comes to the question of all these entertainers and the people who don't know any better. Du Bois said, until that moment of the Atlanta race riot, when I was working down here doing these Atlanta University studies, and they lent Sam Hose and his knuckles and on display and with other body parts in this butcher shop. And I'm like, I thought the world was thinking wrong about race. I thought if we collected the data, if I sent these surveys out, some efforts of Negroes for their own social betterment to these like cities, black cities, Atlanta, uh, Bowling Green, Kentucky, Clarksville, Tennessee, Galveston, Texas, Mobile, Alabama, Petersburg, Virginia, DC, and got the data back, we generate report, we share it with these black institutions and some white ones and we start moving together that the attitudes will begin to change when people say, oh, okay, so we do Oh, I thought the world was thinking wrong about race. When After that ride, I thought to myself, yeah, now this ain't really a question of misinformation. This is a question of propaganda. It ain't that they thinking wrong about race. They, they're going to do that anyway. So I think even in terms of our, our family who are going to be, you know, uh, you know, parading across the stage for white entertainment this weekend I think um I'm always vaguely unsure when the Super Bowl is because I try very hard not to see any scores not to see who's in it so I guess it's coming up because he's almost unavoidable now they'll just you know it wouldn't change them it wouldn't change them because it's not just a matter of I didn't know now it's a matter of I'm aware enough to know that I need to know more, but I got a choice to make. Do I want to be poor? because the idea is that if you're gonna buck this system, you're gonna be poor mm-hmm. or and by poor, I don't mean you'll be out of doors, although that's a fear too for some people. No, it means that you won't be able to buy three Bentley's. you know you might not be able to enter um enter a room in a in a huge mansion and say, you know, Prada blouse, Gucci bra with more jeans. Take that off, <laughs> give it to me, <laughs> give me that stuff. In a way you can't, <laughs> that's what you want. And guess what? The people who have been miseducated think that if they can just get the right couplet of rhymes or do the right jance, they too can get it. Except they in the hood. They're kids at Abbott Elementary who will never get that. But they, you have them convinced because you say, I'm not a businessman. I'm a businessman. me handle my business. Damn. You know, bleak could be one hit away his whole career. As long as I'm alive, he's a millionaire. And even if I die, he's in my will somewhere. I mean, in other words, you think that that could be all of us, which means you have a fundamental misunderstanding of capitalism. But capitalism relies on you thinking that that too can be you if you just bust your ass. And so even if you are introduced to data that refutes that, we have been socialized to believe, yeah, well, that is true of everybody but me. You understand? So I don't think that information enough would change because Du Bois says it's just propaganda. But here's here's the hope, I think, and here's where it comes to, I think, what we can learn from, from, uh, from the Atlanta University studies, the format, the process, and apply in our space. Trying to replicate that methodology as, as work in our space isn't necessary in the sense that there are so many studies now, so many methodologies and so much work, good work being done by people who are subsidized by a lot of institutions. And now because of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the deaths and the uprising in the wake of those, this little guilt money that's being thrown out, this fear money, really, by some people, they're breaking off, you know, I mean, they're breaking off millions of dollars, which, in, relatively speaking, is like, they're breaking off, you know, a nice little fistful of crumbs to HBCUs to start these little kind of, uh, what should I call them, stump or stub initiatives. Here's Here's a million and a half. Here's four and a half million. Here's six million to distribute among eight HBCs. One of y'all taking the lead. And we're going to study housing. We're going to study wealth. We're going to study entrepreneurship. We're going to study. okay, those aren't the Atlantic University studies, but it's enough money for well-meaning and determined scholars to generate data. So we don't have to do that in a place like Nubia or Narrative. We don't have to do that. But what we can do, and this is where the deliberate effort comes in, We can curate data, think through it together, and then figure out how can this new insight be used to do two things, continue to enhance and build this network, this information network. And this is where we're talking about building collectively and connecting. And the other thing is, how can that building together and collecting that we do here then connect to all those places that we see every Monday night at office hours everybody in bringing their brick they're bringing everybody else that's in those networks they're connected to and so and I'll, and I'll use a very specific example from yesterday I was out because the world yeah, is opening back up in some ways and uh, had some um, colleagues in town from Philadelphia. And they had asked me to meet them down at the National Museum of African-American History and Culture to, you know, walk their students through from uh, Cabrini uh, University in Philly and came down, said, you know, well, you know, would you meet us? And I have, again, this has all been experimental. Experimental. It's been a hundred weeks we've been doing this. When we started, as you say, can I press record? That's brilliantly. Last week we did them four hours, which you know is a record we would not approach again. <laughs> no, but but not because it wasn't great, but because you know that was that was a unique moment, right? But in that process, over the arc of these last two years, we've been you know experimenting with how to build collectively, how to connect. Um, two years ago, when we were before COVID, we're entering in a minute the month of March, where this whole thing. Went that way, you know. The commutes were killing us differently. You know, the the students. If we're teachers, you know, you and I are teachers, and all of our teaching colleagues. It's a different kind of rhythm. And when they shut down the world on a dime, you know, my first thought was, it's time to jailbreak it because it's not enough to be in these little places. And we've been able to do a lot of that. So yesterday, I'm down there. So I'm going go. To, I'll go. To, I'll meet y'all down there in the afternoon. Because one of the things that I've been experimenting with, I had an interview yesterday with, uh, was it yesterday? Oh, we did a roundtable on the Supreme Court picks coming up. Because again, a lot of misinformation about that. So we did that. And then um, so so I said, so I can come in the afternoon. Met them down there. And spent hours with them, you know, basically to the place closed, right? Going through things, you know, asking, answering questions, pointing out these in the museum. And I saw a couple from Virginia. Now, of course, we're masked up. So, but, as I'm sure happens to you a lot, because there are millions who know you now, of course, over these last couple of years, even more with the visual. But before that, even now, many, 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 many more by your voice. So as I'm talking, Dr. You know, Carr, hmm? I thought that was you. why? I heard your voice. Those four words. I heard your voice even before COVID. I know I'm loud. <laughs> and then I laugh or something. That's start the car. What? what? Yes. So anyway, a couple from Virginia, uh, school teachers, uh, daughters and administrator at a university in Virginia, talking about the impact of this space on the practices that they engage in as educators. And we got in this whole conversation because their daughter works in financial aid, talking about how black students don't get enough information and how to deal with financial aid and how she's trying to school them and lecture them because the school she works at is $80,000 a year. And children say was flagship school. I wanted to go here since I was a kid. And she's like, yeah, you can get the same education at these other places and they only give out need-based aid and your family makes just enough not to qualify for the most. And even if they get half of that, that's still 40 stacks, what you going to do? And so she said, she said, I wish we had a network to, I said, well, that's what this is. In other words, we're not trying to go into the business of rewriting how people think about financial aid. But in this space, what we can do is when you enter this space and we break data points in and connect it to the momentum of memory, you can then go out and transform that space with your network and then bring that back into the conversation as a best practice. We can leverage that work. And it was very interesting because the conversation turned very quickly as we were talking, standing there talking, turned to critical race theory and what's going on in Virginia. Because, of course, we know now that the white nationalists have taken back the governor's office and the lieutenant governor's office, proving once again that white nationalism doesn't ha- can also come in blackface. You know, they got this whole tip line now of critical race theory is, you know, coming and, you know, if you see critical race theory in your, in your child's school, you can call this tip line. And I said, I embrace that with both arms. What do you mean? I said, that law passes. Yeah. The next day. Yeah. everybody should call the tip line and say yeah listen my child came home and said that in her class they said that christopher columbus discovered america Ah, right, my child was traumatized by this racist interpretation in other words see we're thinking about this wrong come on gonna do what they're going to do and then we then had about a 10 minute conversation on how to do that and how would that relate to nubia and how it would it come very simple We got a lot of elders in Nubia. We got a lot of children in Nubia. I said, I told him yesterday, I said, imagine this. Y'all in Virginia. And you got, you talk to all the churches. You talk not only to the organizations, the AME, AME Zion, the CME, the Pentecostals, all you to get the the leadership, but then go to the churches and say, look, we want everybody, but we're going to start with the Missionary Society and Mother's Board. And we want the elders. To set up a phone tree. So the day this law passes, the next day, we want y'all to. And I said, imagine this Nana sitting on her couch watching her stories on the phone. Ooh, hello? Yes. My grandbaby came home and said something about Brown Board of Education and said it was a setback. She was traumatized. Click. Nana, wait 10 minutes. Hello? Yeah. My grandbaby came home. <laughs> Do y'all understand that there are people in our community? that all you have to do is introduce that idea and they say, oh, we got it. Cause see what you never want to piss off is old black women. <laughs>
0: Can you
1: imagine those grandmothers? Okay, y'all job in Virginia is to bust out the critical race theory line. Oh, no problem. I got 10 grandkids and I know where they all go to school. I'm getting ready to call and I'm gonna lay it out. And then you got people, and then the children. See, y'all think, see here's what you're gonna stand by white nationalism. It's got all the muscle in the world to you punch it in the face. That's when you find out out of a million of them and ain't but eight of them doing it. The rest of them people ain't trying to work that hard. You on the other hand are battle tested. I said, we've seen this show before. I said, I said, Virginia was the home of Spotswood Robinson and Oliver Hill. The It was the home of Barbara Johns. When they walked out of high school, you know, Vernon John's niece, who was down, of course, in, uh, in, in, in Dexter Avenue Baptist Church before Martin Luther King. I said, they argued cases before straight racists and they won. How do you do that? You said, if you're going to put me out of here, you're going to have to tear up your own law books. And either way, I'm cool either way, because either way I win. I said, but that requires networks. And I'm saying what we're building now can allow people once they get that, we don't worry about Super Bowl performances. We too busy lining up the Missionary Society, the Mother's Board, the fraternity sororities to start the CRT class in Virginia. So the, we don't need to collect data. Although what we can do and learn from Du Bois is if there are specific questions we want answered, and we do this every Monday night, we can take polls from people's experiences. I mean, we're not talking about, if we were talking about 200 people, it would be, because it's global you know as we as we saw last week at the 100 we got ads we got people in the continent of africa we got people in the caribbean we got said them in latin america and brazil we got people all over if we just had 200 a snap poll of 200 with that with a feature that could be easily added because we already got the chat and people are coming in dropping in resources putting their experiences in connecting with each other and then every week there's another Cluster that develops with an idea. I mean, that teachers' lounge idea that came out about a month ago. We were in so, in, a, in 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 Miss Education. The Negro was brilliant. Educators starting with the sister in Florida. Educators from all over the world now with a space in Nubia where they can compare no trade curriculum ideas. And so you're not paying Johns Hopkins. You're not paying Harvard. You're not paying Howard. You're not paying any of these institutions who are waiting for a grant or waiting for a sabbatical who thinking we got to do. No, 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 no. The teachers are talking to each other and they've already developed lesson plans and they already know this resource network of folk and they're already connected to the black booksellers that are already posted in narrative and already part of the network. What they're doing now is building without the distraction of all that noise from the social structure that tells you it's got to come from the foundations. It's got to come from the universities. No, we jail broke that. And so I'm saying, what we can learn from Du Bois is as we as we're looking at the data from these various places on these subjects, we will identify, we then say there's a gap here. There's a question that they didn't ask. Well, then let's ask the question of ourselves. And we're not talking about 200 people. We're not talking about 500 people. We're not talking about 750 people. We're not talking about a thousand people. We are talking about 1300 and building every Monday night, just in office hours. And that's not everybody in there. In other words, we have now, thanks to you, established a beachhead for connecting, for creating control, and that looks more like 1897 than 2022.
0: Mm.
1: And see, in that respect, and this is why I'll end with this just for a second, and we'll talk about Alice William for a second, because a lot is tied to her life. COVID gave us, as we talked about last week, a, a, a large captive audience. We Know that it's gonna melt, you know that better than I do. I mean, you this is you know one of the many things you had to master because you understand how, how the, all that stuff works and inter- interacts. How do you get people's ears and eyes before something? Because even yesterday when we were talking, um, you know, there were some things they weren't aware of, and I'm thinking, okay, well, how do we get you involved? How do we get or well, make you aware? And I think at that point, somebody like a Mary J. Blige or or you name the person, once they become aware yeah they might oh that's interesting let me watch that again or let me share that with somebody and that's when we start talking about platform right now the question different question is how do we build sustainable solid movements because a captive audience is one thing Masterclass has put all this money into this black love thing that they did this this month god bless them you know god bless our friends who went and did that why that's platform Right. I mean, we see, you know, we talked about Kamal Bell for a minute. God bless him. Why? Wow, that's platform. Now, you know, CNN got a bigger, larger reach. But the question is, does that translate into movements? No, it doesn't. It just translates into, into eyeballs. Now, what you going to do with it? Nothing. It's branding. It don't mean nothing. Now, how do we influence policy? Well, there are two tracks in policy. Policy influence comes from organization and putting pressure on folk. So when you say Oscars so white and a hashtag and you combine that with a threat of a racial uprising, they may give out three more Oscars than they were going to give. We passed it? Cool. So this year they go back to what they was doing. Haven't done much. In fact, you really haven't done anything Cause it's still their statue. Now, the other element of influence that will require deep shift—that's the hard work of organizing in a space that you control, that you own, that is, where you're building collectively, where you're connecting—and that has the that has the impact long range of changing behavior. I'll give you a very quick example. This is the last one I said in the last category. I'm gonna we'll come to Alice's Window. Kwanzaa may seem like a small thing. But anytime you can walk into Walmart, Target, anytime you can walk into all these places, just like they selling Rosa Parks baby dolls, I say baby doll, Rosa Parks dolls at Mattel, and they selling Maya Angelou dolls, and they selling, you know, Ida B. Wells dolls at Mattel. They're not doing that because they all of a sudden got pro-black or they hired three black people in their diversity unit. They're doing that because they can read the numbers. And that shift, that black consciousness shift, has occurred over the last couple of generations in primary part because of the Black Power Movement of the 60s, and even something like Kwanzaa, the organization that gave the world Kwanzaa, which is a remix of various Africana ways of knowing and cultural meaning-making and movement and memory, and then a gloss that brings it into this moment, useful, that organization. Is tiny. What they did, however, was connect to people who weren't in the organization but who were searching. So what, you, what do you do? You put on programs. And who's at the program? Some of these school teachers. Then they take the stuff back to the schools. Then the children take it back to the house. Then you put on concerts. Then you put on, you know, programs. And those people take it back to the community. Here we are almost 60 years later and the social structure, realizing they couldn't kill it, decide they want to join it. Let's get a Kwanzaa stamp. Oh, okay. Let's get all this uh, Kwanzaa uh, gift paper and Kente print. Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Now, that has two consequences. One, it allows capitalism to attempt to co-opt the thrust. But the other challenge, and this isn't all good or bad. I'm just talking about influence at this point. It runs the risk of what Paulo Freire and others have called the surplus value of knowledge. You think NBA, because you now have a NBA HBCU classic game where your designers put together a fake HBCU logo, and above it, it says NBA and HBCU, and and between that, you got red, black, and green that made me wince when I saw it. Like, red, black, and green is because of the liberation flag. There are no HBCUs with red, black, and green in there. Colors certainly not Howard, whose colors are red, white, and blue for a deliberate gesture toward patriotism. They ain't gonna have no red, black, and green. But you realize, I said, Let me think about this though Would I rather not have red, black, and green in there or have red, black, and green in there? It's still an open question for me. For me as a person, I never want to see red, black, and green associated with the social structure because it ain't. But for me as an educator. I understand that the surplus value of knowledge theory means that somebody looking at that is thinking, yeah, it ain't good enough to go play in the league no more. I want to own a team because red, black and green, Marcus Garvey said you got to own. See, y'all wasn't intending that. (laughs) But that's because small groups didn't try to recruit everybody into the group. They kept their thing tight, grew it slowly and solidly and then used that to connect and in some ways I think that's what we're doing and as far as that's concerned we're ahead of schedule we in the thousands now and growing